Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. And welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. It's episode 147. Appropriately enough, we'll be talking about maximum breaks later on. Uh, a lot of episodes in 147, but uh, if you think we've been wasting our time, I, th- this morning I came across a new podcast. This is absolutely true. It's a podcast, and there's one episode a week, and each one is based on everyone and everything that is mentioned in Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, right? <laughs> That's Can not, you send not, me the link for that? Well, it's apparently there's 143 things in it. So I just looked up, like, the first line is Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray. That's four weeks. Wow. <laughs> so that's proper. Katie Puckrick is presenting it, so it's a proper thing. But oh, uh be a long, a long time till we get to Bernie Getz. Anyway, yeah. um, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Snooker, of course. And uh, for two things to say before we, we get into the meat of the podcast. Firstly, happy birthday to Fergal O'Brien for this week. Um, There's our mention done. Well, you know, he's almost become a mascot. So happy birthday, Fergal. Of course, he had a bad defeat <laughs> last week to mm-hmm. a 15 year old, because uh, young William Boyko first went on the tour. Um, but the main thing is, uh, I have to uh, I have to make an apology uh, to one of our listeners because. Well, uh, apology's th- a big word now. Well, let's see how big it is after this. Yeah. Okay. D- Dara Breen uh, contacted us a couple of weeks ago to say that he he preferred watching the Welsh Open on the BBC to Eurosport because he felt the angle. The main camera angle on the BBC was better. It was less sort of flat than Eurosport. And I <laughs> I essentially rubbished it. I said, I, I, hopefully not in that way, but I said, listen, I don't think you're right. It can't be. That can, cannot be right. Um, it's the same feed. It's the same camera. So it's the same angle. Well, <laughs> it turns out he was right because I spoke to, uh, and he, he, here's someone who gets mentioned maybe more than Fergal now, Tom Anderson from Eurosport, mm. one, of, one of the top people down there. He listens to the podcast. And he very quickly messaged me and said, no, it is actually true. There is a way, apparently, and obviously it's a technical thing that we don't understand, but there is a way, apparently, of getting a slightly different angle from that camera. And the certain uh, the BBC have certain um, rules against too many adverts or whatever. I don't know what it is on the set. But basically, uh, Dara, you were correct. And Zach Nuri also emailed in with, with, with sort of evidence he'd gathered that supported the original email. So there we are. I was wrong. Um, well, what but, was the guy's yeah. name again? Dara Breen. 
Oh, well, you see, this podcast is all about you slapping down Irish people and what they say and eventually <laughs> having to backtrack. I mean, that's a pretty much our weekly theme. Yeah. St- stick that in. We didn't start the fire. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so there we are. And thanks to Tom. Now, speaking of Tom, uh, Mr. Snooker, as we call him, he is making a documentary for Eurosport about last year's World Championship oh, yeah, semi- semi-finals, yeah. the, two, the two epic semi-finals. So look out for that. Um, it'll be, we think, on air the week before the Crucible. Uh, I have been interviewed for it, but uh, it remains to be seen whether my contributions will make make it or not. But it should be good, that. And, you know, it's nice to see a documentary about something happening now. Um, obviously, the BBC have this one coming up about the 80s. It's a three-part series. It's a big thing. Um, I did mention it a few months ago, but it's been sort of announced this week. Louis Theroux's production company. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not going to prejudge it. Having said that, I did speak to someone working on it. And I, my prediction is it'll be really good. Um, the, the, the other one, actually, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility that someone, I'm not saying it will happen with this one, but that someone could make a documentary about last year's semi-finals and do it in the same sort of dew-eyed, nostalgic way the programs about the 80s are. Yeah. You know, someone might come on and say, oh, there were great characters in the game back in 2020. <laughs> it's not been the same since at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I say, the the, uh, the BBC one, I, I have high, high hopes for having sort of spoke to a couple of people who involved in it, but uh, we'll see. And no doubt we'll talk about that when it, uh, when it hits the, the airwaves. Um, anyway, let's get on with what's been happening now. Of course, uh, we haven't spoken since the players championship, mm. um, which I think I'm pretty sure I can't remember without going back, but I'm pretty sure when John Higgins lost the masters final, I, I said something like, you know, we can't be sure how many more big finals John will appear in. <laughs> well, a, a month later, he plays some of the best snooker of his life to win. And what a, what a performance. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things. It was so good, you struggled to find anything to say about it. It's not like there were even that many sort of twists in the story of how he won the title. It was just basically him relentlessly winning frames with one big break after another. The only question for me is, is that the best he's ever played in the course of a tournament? In 1998, when he won the World Championship, the first World Championship that you and I both worked on, I thought, okay, this is actually better than I've ever seen Henry. This is the best anyone's ever played. But you could make a case that, OK, yes, it was over fewer matches and slightly shorter distances, but that the way he played was perhaps even better than he did then. It, it, but it's just very hard to find anything more to say about it. It was just a case of the third greatest player of all time, certainly one of the top three greatest players of all time, playing pretty much as well as he's ever done. And doing so in, well, we'll mention the Mercantile Credit Classic now because <laughs> he becomes the oldest ranking event winner since uh, Doug Mountjoy won the Mercantile back in 89. Just amazing that he's still going after all this time. And you think back to 1995, the first time Higgins and O'Sullivan ever met in a ranking final. It's still the only all-teenage ranking final there's ever been. The fact that they're still here in their mid-40s and they're playing probably better now, or certainly Higgins probably playing better now than he did in that final. It just feels like this is a story we keep coming back to again and again, just how good these guys are. As you were talking there, I was thinking if, if we were to rewrite We Didn't Start the Fire based on <laughs> this podcast, we've already got a few elements there. Um, maybe that's something to think about for next week. Anyway, uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's, I was there and, and you can always see when you can always sort of tell when John's going to play well from his face. He's got this extraordinary determination. Mm. Uh, he's made what seems like to the layman quite a quite a simple change. He's moved his bridge hand closer to the cue ball, but it's given him a bit more power. And the main thing is it's given him more confidence clearly in his game. Um, I just thought he was sensational. I mean, to, to, to sort of keep Mark Selby to seven points in a best of 11, just unbelievable. And it's interesting, the day of the final, um, without, I mean, my predictions are usually off, which is why I can, I can now, now tell this story. 
uh, they're not always very good. But the day of the final, I went in the little ITV sort of commentary room where everyone's preparing, and everyone was saying, "Oh, you know, it's a toss of a coin." And I honestly just said, "Listen, I think he's going to win easily, Higgins, because mm. he played clearly the best snooker of the week." I went for ten five. It was ten three, but you know, he's one of the few players who, when he plays his best, can literally outplay Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's playing well. It's not to say, like, obviously, if Ronnie has an off day, anyone can beat him. But when Ronnie's playing well, as he did over the course of the week, and Higgins plays his best, he can beat him easily, as he did the last time they played. Well, I'm going to hit you with... The final. Yes. Well, yeah, it was so long ago, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, I'm going to hit you with a couple of questions here now, Okay. So Higgins won 28 frames in the course of the week. Yeah. How many of those 28 did his opponent fail to pot a ball? Well, I'm guessing you know the answer. I do know I the answer, yeah. I mean, it was quite a high proportion. The, 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 the frame, I mean, he should have lost a frame to Jordan Brown when Jordan missed the pink. But yeah. other, otherwise, in that match, he shot him out. Of course, Selby shot out. Wilson, he lost one. I don't know. I mean, I'll say, I'm going to guess, I'll say 12. 15. <laughs> so that's more than half of the frames yeah. that he won in the course of the week. He did so without his opponent potting a ball. But perhaps even more remarkable is this one. Out of those same 28 frames... In how many of those 28 did his opponent get out of single figures? Well, I'm guessing not many. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's not really a guess, though. Well, uh, why don't you just tell us? Six. <laughs> okay. Six times. But actually, for all of that and for all the amazing stats, I mean, you mentioned the one about restricting Selby to seven points. I mean, you just can't find the words to sum that up. There's no point even trying. But for me, the frame that really summed it up was the one where, was it 65 nil down he was? against yeah. Kyron Wilson. It was just this, you sort of felt once Kyron hadn't finished it off, he's going to lose this frame because just that stubbornness, that determination, yeah. I will not lose a frame. Well, that's, uh, what, that's, what, that's what Hendry said. He said, John, yeah. John's mentality is I'm not going to leave the table till I've won the frame. And, and yeah. as you say, most of the time it happened. But let's hear from Callum Law, who enjoyed it. He said, during the excellent ITV coverage, a lot was made of Higgins' heavy scoring. But the biggest difference watching for me was the quality of his safety. Too often in the last couple of years, I've felt Higgins' safety has let him down in the big matches against top players. The Masters final against Yambing Tao being a recent example. Yeah. So to see him play consistently, excellent safety as he did all week, is hugely encouraging. Because in my opinion, when his safety is good, everything else follows. Although others may garner greater favouritism come the start of the World Championship, John Higgins is certainly in a position to challenge for a fifth world title if he can stay at a level close to this current form. He's got the experience and know-how in his game. Seems tailor-made for the long matches at the Crucible. Having been a Higgins fan for the last 15 years, I've been watching snooker to see him win a fifth world title will be a dream come true. I guess that's the question now, isn't it? A, can he reproduce that form? But B, can he sustain it, obviously, over a much longer period? I mean, you mentioned he's won the 28 frames. He's going to have to win 71 to be world champion. If he can, he absolutely could win it. But it's just a question of just a question of whether he can. Well, I mean, you can't imagine someone called Higgins winning the world championship 10 years after they last <laughs> won it. I mean, that would never happen, would it? Well, yeah, worth, I mean, look, go on. No, I was going to say very quickly, it's worth saying that he's been in three of the last four finals. Yeah. And that, that's, without, that's without playing that well. Yeah. I, I do think actually in the last of those, the one against Trump, his safety did let him down in that. Now, look, Trump was unbelievable, wasn't he? But Higgins did help him along, which wasn't commented on a great deal at the time. I thought his safety uh, did let him down in that final. He may well have lost anyway, but perhaps he might not have lost quite so heavily. There's every chance he could go and win the World Championship. No one will be in the least bit surprised. Another Triple Crown title for him, Dave. Again, I haven't brought that up. You have, because the, I did. I was sort of half listening to the TV last night, and I, I, I'm sure I heard them say the triple crown was in crisis. But it turned out it was mm-hmm. turned out it was something less important. Anyway, uh, a bit of satire there. Um, yeah, anyway, 
Topical. Yeah, so Hashtag we left, topical. Sorry, go abs- on. Absolutely. So we left the um, we left the Players' Championship with Higgins having lost four frames in the tournament. We said, that's just unbelievable. That will never happen again. Someone winning a tournament only losing four frames. The next week, Judd Trump wins one, losing three frames. Gibraltar mm-hmm. Open, obviously shorter matches, but that doesn't mean it was easier. In some, some ways, you could argue it was harder winning all these best of sevens. Yeah. Um, and again, just, well, I mean, we keep saying the same thing about him, but that intensity, that focus... And the brilliance of his play, um, incredible, really. I was listening, actually, uh, it was you that mentioned it on the commentary the other night, that he was now level with Mark Williams on 22 ranking titles. So O'Sullivan, as we know, has the record. 37 now, is it? Yeah. Yeah, because he overtook Henry by one. Okay, so Trump is 15 behind. Now, you consider in the last, I think it's about 28 months, he's won 14 ranking titles. I mean, you know, it's not hard to imagine at all. Okay, he might not keep up that rate for the next few years, but even if he keeps going at half that rate, then in six or seven years, he's going to overtake O'Sullivan. Now, you might say there are more tournaments now, and I mean, that would be true, but don't forget O'Sullivan has been around, you know, for throughout that era when there have been a lot more tournaments as well. So I think he's definitely now going to have that in his sights, even though in one sense, it looks like he's a long way from it. But if you consider as recently as November 2018, he'd won eight ranking events, mm-hmm. which is brilliant. And now he's on 22. Fantastic stuff. And, uh, you know, he won three matches in a row, 4-0 at one stage. Uh, I think leading up to the to the quarterfinals. Yeah. And then, I mean, the final as well. I mean, he played very well. But I do think finals are definitely becoming a mental block now for Lozowski, which is hardly surprising after losing so many of them and still not having won one. Well, I think... I think certainly playing Trump in a final half. Yeah. He, he played one shot in the first frame, which to me was just panicking. He, he, he attempted to pot a red off another red, and it was a sort of shot in an exhibition you'd think twice about. And it's almost as if he just had to do something and kind of needed to sort of take a breath. And then obviously he did get in in that third frame, missed the pink with a good chance. You know, it's his third defeat to Trump. He played well, Jack. I thought he played well in the tournament, and I was feeling that maybe a best of seven final he'd have a chance. But I remember saying before before we got to the fact that it was those two, he needs to avoid Trump because everyone needs to avoid Trump in mm. finals. Um, yeah, uh, the, the format of the tournament was interesting, I think. Um, obviously, I mean, seven-day event, on day five, they were still playing the second round. Um, now, you might say, why? Well, the reason is it wasn't actually in the Marshall Arena. The, the, the Marshall Arena is where you can get all the tables, eight tables. Um, they had the UK Open darts in there, um, which was on ITV4. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was actually played where they play the Championship League. It's in a smaller part of the building in Stadium MK in the ballroom. And they can only fit four tables in. So consequently, the format, it, it, it dragged a little bit. But having said that, one of the criticisms you often hear, and we're going to get to this later, actually, when we talk about TV table allocations. But one of the criticisms you hear on the home nations is we only ever see the same players. Well, one thing about this event, we got to see a lot of different yeah. people. And I think that was good. Yeah. You got to see, mm. you know, ev- not everyone had their chance, but... Lots of different players had that chance. And then, obviously, on the last day, it, it got kind of really, really good. You played the last three rounds. Um, there's an argument to say they possibly could have configured it to have a longer final. If it's a seven-day tournament, maybe seems odd to have a best-of-seven final. But, you know, th- there's a certain skill to winning short matches. And Trump, I mean, he's only lost one best-of-seven in the last 13 months. That was to Hussein Vafai in the Welsh Open, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I did feel... You know, it wasn't as if they were, you know, coming straight into that final, having only just finished the semis. I mean, it was being played as a standalone match. 
hours after the semi-finals had finished. So why not even even make it best of nine or maybe at a push best of 11 might have added a bit more to it. But Lazowski, he's a bit like the position Graham Dot was in because he lost three or maybe it was even four ranking finals before he won one. The trouble was they were all against the likes of Hendry, Higgins, mm-hmm. players like that. O'Sullivan, of course, in the in the world final in 2004. And when he did finally break his duck, it was against a very, very good player in Peter Ebden, but someone who wasn't quite of the same level as he'd been used to playing in, in ranking finals. And indeed, it was the biggest of the lot. Maybe that's what Lazowski needs, because I think all his ranking finals have been against Trump, Robertson or Selby, haven't they? Yeah. Like all, all of the six yeah. that he's played. So, I mean, you know, you're never going to face an easy opponent in a ranking final, especially nowadays. You can't get to a final without playing really, really well. But, you know, it, it would be interesting to see if he now went into a final against someone not quite at that level, even someone slightly below that, someone, you know, around his own position in the rankings, whether that would make a difference. But the more of these finals he goes on losing, the more and more it's going to build up in his head. Definitely. Well, we've had an email from Edwin O'Shea about the Gibraltar Open. He said, greetings once again from Virginia. Just a short note to say, all hail the Gibraltar Open. Praise it for the many for many of the same reasons that one celebrates the shootout. Gibraltar Open had all the positives of the shootout, the relatively quick matches all the way to the final itself, coupled with the presence of many players not usually in the mix on the final weekend. The work week doesn't allow for a lot of weekday watching, so having one weekend of many players, not just the four in the semis and the final, makes for a novel one-off. There was also a great deal at stake, especially so because of its position late in the calendar, tour cards at the bottom of the rung, crucible qualifying at the top, the bet victor bonus, all made for a lot of compelling narratives of multi-layered drama. Yet in contrast to the shootout, the Gibraltar Open was still proper snooker, by which I mean 128 men push balls around tables for a week, and in the end, Judd Trump wins. I wouldn't want more short-format events like the Gibraltar Open, but look forward to it when it returns again next year. That's, you see, that's an example of someone taking the positives and mm. looking at the positives. I'm all for that, actually, because it's very easy to look at it and say, well, you know, the format's wrong, blah, blah, blah. We know all the, all the criticisms you can level. He enjoyed it. That's good to know, Edwin. Of course, the big story, though, of the tournament, really, apart from Trump winning it, was Stephen Hendry returning. I think everyone was kind of curious to know how he would play, how he would fare. Played Matt Selt on the second evening and played, I thought, very well. But, of course, the problem he had was Matt Selt played fantastically well. I think that was one of his best performances on television. He didn't let the pressure, pressure get to him. You know, he's a friend of Hendry's, but aside from that, he knew there was a lot of tension on him. Um, he played great. Stephen Hendry made a century, which was just fantastic to see. Uh, there was a key shot early on, actually. He had a long blue in the first frame. Yeah. And I thought he's got every right to butcher this, and that could set him back for the whole match. He's knocked it in sweet as a nut. And, you know, there are signs there that he's clearly feeling good about how he's playing. We don't know, you know, what's going to happen in the world qualifying. But nice to see him, not just back, but actually playing all right. Here's the thing, though, of the many things I took away from that match, he probably showed more emotion in the first frame of that match than he did in his entire career (laughs) between 85 and 2012 when he was first on the tour. I mean, he never used to give anything away. But, you know, there were grimaces and, you know, you could actually hear him talking to himself at times. And he did look nervous and he was bound to after nine years away. It was a nightmare combination for him in one sense in that Celt's long potting was great and Hendry's own safety wasn't great. And, you know, if you've got bad safety, you're going to leave a lot of long reds on. And if the guy you're playing is knocking in the long reds, well, I mean, you don't really have a hope from there, do you? I think that was always inevitable, though, because, you know, you can practice potting and break building and that. I don't know at that level if there's any real preparation for safety, quite like exposing your tactical game to the cut and thrust of match play, which obviously he hasn't really done for nine years. The thing that I was thinking afterwards, he was talking to Roddy Bissett from World Snooker afterwards and uh, 
he had some very interesting things to say. And he said that I'm glad I wasn't missing easy balls because when I've played in the seniors, I've missed a lot of easy balls, but I haven't been properly prepared for those tournaments. Now, he clearly was prepared a lot better for this. That made me think, even if he can't compete on the regular circuit, if that's what a properly prepared Hendry can do, then he should be cleaning up in the seniors events. Mm. And, you know, you would think we could end up next May, uh, a couple of months away now, with the sight of Stephen Hendry lifting a trophy at the Crucible again, because, he's, as he said, he's not really given himself a chance in the World Seniors the couple of times he's played in it. And, of course, if you win the World Seniors, then he's playing in the Champion of Champions, which is on ITV. You could be having to look for time off, which means it could be a harder week for you come next November. <laughs> so uh, interesting possibilities from that point of view. But I, I just there were, there were just one or two signs, I thought, that suggested to me, yes, he's playing all right here. Wonderful to see him making the century. But it, it would just underline, I think, the doubts I would have as to whether he can be any kind of force on the circuit again. And clearly, if, if he's going to, if he's going to get... Even to have hopes of being a top 64 player, he's going to have to play in a lot more tournaments if he's going to continue with this next season. No, I think all that's true. But he did look good close in. And actually, that was his problem at the end of his career originally, is that he was just he was not making the breaks anywhere near as regularly as he once mm. was. I mean, I know he made that maximum, but he said he didn't feel comfortable, actually, um, you know, in, in sort of easy positions, as it were. Whereas he, he actually did in this match. I agree, his safety and his long potting are things he needs to work on. But... But you know, there's, it's it's good. It's nice to see he came out. I know he lost four one, but he played well. And Matt Sell, all credit to him. By the way, Matt Sell was very unlucky in that semi final. Um, yeah. Against against Trump, I mean, so many things went against him. It was unbelievable. Trump played well. Don't get me wrong, but but it was some um, a bit painful for him. But he had a, he had a good, he had a good week. On on that note, someone else we have to mention. I I can't remember whether you were commentating on it. Or not. In fact, I don't even know if it was on TV because I watched it later on YouTube. The quarter final between Lazowski and Lu Ning. What was was astonishing. Lou was 3-1 up. Lazowski came back with two big breaks to force a decider. And it was one of those where whoever ended up losing was going to be absolutely kicking themselves because they both had so many chances. They both had about four or five clear chances. And Lou Ning just couldn't get himself over the line. Lazowski really struggled to get across the line himself. It was an extraordinary finish. And I'd recommend it to anyone to have a look at it. And even at the end, when Lou has left match ball on the last red, Lazowski pots it. Lou Ning comes forward to concede before the balls have come to rest. Now, if you'd waited a moment, he was only 31 behind with the colours left. And I don't think there was a colour on for Lazowski. So he only would have needed one snooker to tie. And he was a bit hasty in, in conceding the match. So uh, that, that, was, that, that was one that definitely, um, you know, it's worth having a look back at. But I agree with that guy who emailed in. I thought it was another really good tournament. I think the last three events have all been great. And actually, this is developing into a really, really good season now. We spoke the last time I was on about how many good finals there have been. You look at the Hendry story. You look at Trump continuing to evolve as you know the great player that he's become. Uh, you look at Lazowski and all these finals that he keeps getting bit beaten in. So many stories along the way. It, it really is turning into a wonderful season. I wonder, he says, segueing into the main topic, if at the, yeah. World, Cham if at the World Championship we will have a, a maximum break, as we did last year, John Higgins. She's only ever been 11 there, I think. Um, and... This is episode 147, so we're going to now move on to talking about 147s. Obviously, it's the holy grail for snooker players. Um, there have been, I've got the official list here, there's been 166 maximum breaks on the on the professional tour that have been officially ratified, although we'll come into corn to this maybe later, but some of them are a bit dubious about whether they should mm. have been rat ratified. The first on the official list was Steve Davis at the Lada Classic on ITV. Uh, not, 
January the 11th, 1982. They actually showed it um, after one of the Players' Championship matches. Yeah. Um, and it was an amazing break. I mean, you, obviously, you, you can still sense the excitement because it's a first. He pots that great pink at the end as well, which is a ridiculous shot, really, mm. um, under the pressure. It's right, I guess, that Steve was the first because he was the king of the 80s. Uh, what I love about that break as well is the disparity in the commentary styles between John Pullman and David Taylor. John Pullman, you know, taking the less is more approach um, and David Taylor taking the more is more approach <laughs> by just shouting his mouth off. But, I mean, you can understand the excitement. Of course, Steve made it against John Spencer. Now, he, he famously had made one three years earlier in an ITV tournament, but the uh, cameramen were at McDonald's. They were on a, on a scheduled break. Um, in those days, it was just bad luck if they took the break and you know something happened in the snooker. Uh, it it it's transpired that the pockets hadn't weren't of the official template, so it wouldn't have counted. But it would still have been a TV maximum, I and mean, we would still be watching that break today had the cameraman been there. Um, yeah, I think it should be mentioned a lot more than it really is. Apparently, it was Alex Higgins who sort of broke the news to most people there, because I think I, I may be slightly wrong with some of the details, but broadly this story is, is is correct as far as I know. Higgins was actually in the arena watching. Now I don't know what sort of press room setup there was in those days, but they wouldn't have been watching it on monitors anyway, because as you say, it wasn't being filmed. And apparently Alex Higgins burst into the room and said, "Spenny's done a one four seven. Honest, this isn't a wind up." I mean, what a scene that is. And Clive, of course, talks about how he was in McDonald's at the time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah he, he joined the cameraman on their break. He heard, he heard, that, he heard that it was on expenses. Anyway, um, but no, yeah, but Joe Johnson was also there. And he told me that um, after posing the pink, Spencer sort of throws himself onto the table, like a sort of mock faint, sort of recognising the, you know, the importance of it, which is quite odd. Um, but those were the, those were, that's how it was in those days. Um, but yeah, he was unlucky, I think. And of course, he was the opponent of Steve. And then we sort of go into the ones that, you know, even if you weren't alive, you've, you've seen Cliff Thorburn at the Crucible. Um, the great thing about that break is is actually one of the things that Cliff was often criticised for. It was made in a, at, a, at a slow pace. But of course, mm. that almost sort of a mic, in microcosm of the, the World Championship itself allowed the drama to build and build and build. Great scenes, of course, with Werbenek peeping around the wall and Terry Griffiths in the bear hug and all that stuff. I love how Cliff grabs his fags at the end as well. It's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kirk Stevens at the Masters. I mean, you know, that's that's like sexy snooker, isn't it? That, that break, fantastic match with Jimmy Wyatt. But it's po- worth pointing out, none of these were live on television. They were all recorded and shown at a later date. Now, in those days, you know, there was no internet. You, you might have heard about it on the radio, but possibly you would not know until you watched it. Um, but they were big news. I mean, Kirk Stevens... He's remembered for that, isn't he? He's remembered for that break. More than anything else. And maybe that's perhaps because he never actually won any of the tournaments. You know, he maybe won the Even Cliff, even Cliff, yeah. was, who was world champion. A lot of people, I think, if you said Cliff Thorburn, oh, yeah, the maximum at the Crucible. Well, I think he went to a baseball match when he was back home that summer. And he, I don't think he knew this was happening, but they showed during a break in play, and in baseball there are a lot of breaks in play, I think they showed the last few balls on the big screen. He didn't know it was going to be coming on. There was some story about that. I mean, like, you look at the Thorburn break. So it was 1983, so I wasn't yet quite seven at the time. And obviously the Davis break was before that, so I wasn't aware of them at all. I wasn't into snooker yet. But I do remember seeing them both as special programmes. People of a certain age will remember uh, there was a thing used to be on the BBC, certainly in the 1980s, called 100 Great Sporting Moments. And I remember just on a Friday night seeing this in the listings, this was going to be shown, Cliff Thorburn's 147 from the 1983 World Championship. 
And that was the first time I'd ever seen it. So that was like four years after it had been made. The Steve Davis one, probably around the same time, just randomly turned up on RTE one night. Um, they actually showed just out of nowhere. It wasn't even part of a series or anything. It was about 8.30 on like a Tuesday or Wednesday night, about five years after it happened. Steve Davis makes the first ever televised 147. And again, that was the first time I'd actually seen that. But that was then released, I remember, as a video. You could actually imagine this. This, this, was the, this was the world we were in at the time. You could actually buy a 1982 Ladder Classic commemorative video, which included... <laughs> I'd love the... to watch that now. If, if someone, <laughs> someone came in with that now, I'd stop this podcast and put it on. Well, get on eBay. It's probably still there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But it, it included the 147. And then the final frame of the final between Terry Griffiths and, wow. and Steve Davis. Now, I didn't buy it, but I do remember renting it out one day from the video shop. Um, so fantastic times. But yeah, I mean, they were just historic moments. And, you know, everyone knew what a big deal a 147 was. If you were vaguely interested in snooker, if you were vaguely interested in sport at all, everyone knew just the enormity of it. And, and it was massive, massive news at the time. And of course, the next one, I mean, after the Stevens one, there were a few that weren't on TV, but it was eight years then until the next one. And we were talking about it on this podcast only a few weeks ago, the Watanab one, which, as I always mention, I'm fairly sure was on News at 10 that night. Yes, well, Nick Owen and all that, and all that. But uh, yeah. yeah, that that was, uh, and then of course, very and very soon after that, literally a few weeks, Jimmy White made one against the same player, Tony Drago, yeah, at the world yeah. championship. At the world championship, um, I, I guess as as the nineties sort of went on, you know, the more players came into the game because the game had gone open, there were more matches to play, and you, you're going to get more maximums. And at some point, I guess sort of late nineties, early two thousands, they started to become much more regular. I mean, I think sort of, I've just got the list here, 1999 alone. Yeah. There were like 10 in 1999 alone. So um, at that point, the specialness slightly went away. It didn't go away. If you, I'm, I think it's important to say this. If you're a member of the audience and you paid money to go and watch and you see a maximum, you don't care how many of the bit they've been. That might be the first one you've seen, yes. first one you'll ever see live. Yeah. Um, it's very special to live audiences it always feels special on television and it's certainly special to the players, particularly a player who's making one uh, for the first time. I think somewhere along the line though, it got sort of conflated with the importance of it got conflated with how much money you got for them. Mm. Because at the world championship, they used to get 147,000. That was the bonus prize plus the high uh, break. And, yeah. I was going to say, and you get the high break as well. Yeah. So it's about another 20 grand. So it's a lot yeah. of money. And at some point it became a little bit too much about that. I think, um, and not enough about actually the achievement because let's, how many frames of snooker there been? There've been tens of thousands of frames of snooker played. Um, how many maximums have there been? 166. So that tells you it is very, very, very difficult to make one in a match. The, the one that I always think of when I think of watching maximums, I always think of O'Sullivan's one in '97, which actually is probably the one that's talked about the most because of how fast it was. And well, I reckon. Still- I reckon, I reckon that might have been the first one actually on live television in Britain. Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say something similar to that. I think you're almost certainly right about that. Certainly, the one that Henry made against O'Sullivan in the um, the final frame of the Charity Challenge final. That uh, that certainly wasn't on live. The, the two that were made against Drago that we mentioned, they weren't on live. So maybe the Henry one in '95 at the World Championship was that shown live? No. Maybe no. was it not? No. Oh, that was I know that for a fact because I heard about it on the radio before it had been shown. All oh, right, well there you go then. Yeah, and then I know Henry made one at the UK against Gary Wilkinson later that year. I don't think that was on live, so I'd be fairly sure you're right about that. And it, it was the first time, certainly, 
from my point of view, that I watched a 147, not knowing it was coming. Mm. Because all the previous ones, since I'd started watching snooker, I mean, we spoke about this before, the game was given away by Nick Owen when Wadena made his. David Vine, I think it was, did much the same thing when Jimmy made his one a few weeks later. So it was generally the case that, you know, they couldn't help themselves from giving the game away. They'd say something like, there's a very special moment coming up. Don't miss the, the fifth frame or whatever. I'm going. I'm going to just jump in, and I'm going to expand. Yeah. And this, and this is one of the. This is the most niche interjection on a podcast ever. Okay. Right. Okay. I'm going to exonerate David Vine because I think Jimmy's was shown in Sports Night. Well, and, and I don't think yeah. so. And David Vine would not have been presented Sports Night. I think you're partly right. Okay, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you thought that was niche. Okay, yeah. I'm going to get even nicher. Okay. My recollection of that is that there was a mid-evening program where the 147 was shown. Right which I think was presented by David Vine. And then later that night in Sports Night, because it was such a big deal at the time, they opened the programme with Des Lynham in the Sports Night studio interviewing Jimmy, who was at the Crucible. I think had a glass of champagne in his hand. So, so I'm sticking to my guns on that one. Yeah, but, well, you say, you say guns. It's not, it's not exactly... Anyway, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, but, but, but yeah, well, Go just on. to finish what I was saying about yeah. the O'Sullivan one, I remember very clearly Monday afternoon, sitting at home, watching it, and um, that was the last year, actually, before I started working at the championship. So sitting at home watching it. And as you say, it was going out live. And really, after that, any future televised ones, sometimes you knew about them, sometimes you didn't. But it, it had got to that point that, as you say, it was a bit less special by then anyway. So in terms of watching them, that's the one that always stands out for me is that one in 97. I think as well, though, it's sort of the, 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 the sort of context of you know where you make one obviously the bigger tournaments they tend to be more memorable yeah um and and the sort of situation in the event i remember running down from the press room uh 99 that that third session between o'sullivan and hendry oh yeah snooker from the god session as clive put it and ronnie was on one and um i went into the photographer's box and stood right behind where he missed the pink um and that was an electric moment i mean that's we'll come on to sort of near misses in a minute but well, we can't talk about that without mentioning the fact I mean, you were in the photographer's box. So there must have been plenty of room for you because one of the photographers at the end of that session came back into the crucible and everyone was buzzing, not just about the near 147, but the quality of play in that. And he didn't know what was going on. Apparently he'd been out ice skating while That's that right. session had been had been in, in progress. So he would have been on, on thin ice when he had to go back and say he didn't have any pictures if there had been a 147. <laughs> but anyway... No, we'll uh, the, yeah, no. Well, I was, what I was saying was you could like the atmosphere in there. I mean, it's a great session of Stuka anyway, but you know, it was the chance to. I mean, I think the crowd felt they they probably had seen something special anyway. They'd seen Roddy yeah. not make a maximum, um, and of course, you know, we well, why don't we go on to that now? I mean, we've got to talk about Ken, mm. the, the mass at the Masters. Um, I mean, again, it, it, like for all that Ken has achieved, and he's achieved plenty. Unfortunately, that is on his kind of that is in his obituary, isn't it? That that miss, it's going to be there. It's on his permanent record, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I mean, we were both. Well, you were you were there, weren't you? I know. I yeah, was, yeah. I yeah, think yeah. you were there too. The story that's never been told about that, and I, I'm not going to go into a great amount of detail on it, but apparently, while that break was being made, the tournament director was having to negotiate with the local police to not evacuate the venue <laughs> because there had been an incident in the area that night. We won't go into Ken, too much detail I about bet it. Ken, Ken wishes now he had done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was certain. I remember the following year, uh, we didn't know about it at the time, but when we went back to the masters 12 months later, uh, we, we were told that it happened, but yeah, I mean, the thing about it is it wasn't even a difficult black, you know I mean? It was, it was the most routine black imaginable. And they, I remember on the, 
if you see it now on television, because it often gets shown that block that he missed, they cut to Matthew Stevens, who he was playing. And you can see Matthew popping his head around because he can't see the black. So he has to lean kind of across Ken. And then they cut to him afterwards. He looks as crestfallen as Ken does. He's actually applauding because I think he was getting ready to clap the black going down that he was, it seemed so certain he was going to get it. He just started clapping anyway. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's never going to leave Ken, is it? No, because it's like a sort of walk of shame back to his seat, isn't it? There's the anti-climax. Everyone, like Matthew, everyone's getting ready to applaud. And then, oh no, he's not done it. And, yeah, it must have been awful. I mean, it's happened to a few other people. It happened to Robin Hull in the World Qualifiers. Um, it happened to Mark Selby in China. It was on telly. No one ever talks about this. Um, I'm mm. sure Selby's happy about it. But he definitely did it. I remember commentating. He just missed the last black. Um, and other various other people have got very close. But uh, this just this shows you that, you know, it is it is the, the, the ultimate break you can make. You know, it, it's it's players say, like Trump said, he made one in the Northern Ireland Open this season. He said, this is the time where you're going to get nervous because... It is special. And, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan, the greatest break builder of all time, has made 15, which is fantastic. But I guess subjectively, it's not that many considering how many centuries he's had. He's over a thousand centuries. 15 have been maximum. So even he, in tournament play, you know, has not sort of got to massive numbers. He's got to great numbers. Mm. But but it, what I'm saying is, it's even though we're kind of more used to them, they're still rare. I mean, I've commented, someone said to me, I might have commentated on more than anyone else, which won't be true, by the way, because, for example, Rolf Kalb, a German Eurosport, probably done all of them on Eurosport, I would imagine. Um, but you definitely get more excited. Um, you, there's that frizz on when you sort of get to 40. and They put the graphic up, five reds, five blacks. And you always hope they're going to do it, because why wouldn't you? You know, you well, want to you want to uh, see a maximum. Well, I've seen the graphic go up one red and one black. Mm. It was just getting a little bit carried away. But here are a couple of questions for you now, actually, and yeah. you've led nicely into them with, with what you were saying there, but commentating on them. I've only commentated on one, actually, the one that Luca Brussel made um, a couple of years ago now. But what, what was the first one you commentated on? Can you remember? Well, I don't. I, I actually can't. Um, I, I sort of looked down the list for clues, but I mean, I suppose they sh- I probably should know, shouldn't I? But I don't know. It, it would have been, I guess, one of the early ones at Eurosport. I definitely did. Hendry's second and third ones at the Crucible. So the first one of those was 2009. Um, what about the O'Sullivan um, one uh, when he made the five centuries at the Northern Ireland Trophy? That that was early on in your time. Uh, yeah. So maybe that was it. Maybe. The thing about that was it was like the maximum, I mean, obviously it was very special, but the, the whole because he made five centuries, it was kind of yeah. a bonanza of, of, uh, of breaks. Um, the one that I remember that very clearly was the one he made against Ding in the Welsh Open to win the Welsh mm. Open. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, he played that unbelievable shot on the last red. But the thing about that was the crowd, like, were on, they're on their feet as the pink goes in. There's a guy stood right behind, like, Ronnie, like, going mad. Um, and, and then Ronnie changes hands and plays the black left-handed. Unbelievable. I mean, just an unbelievable spectacle. Um well can, 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 well, can you remember even the first one that you witnessed, whether you were commentating or not? The first one that you were actually in the arena to see? Well, this is, well, you might be able to help this. I, mm. I think I might have seen the one John Higgins made at the Irish Masters um, against Jimmy. I think I went in to watch that. Right. Um, now, that was 2000. Um, I, I, I think that's right, but, but it may be wrong. <laughs> well, funny, it's amazing that you're actually mentioning that one. This is freaky because I'm sitting in my office here and I just happened to move my head there. I still have it on the wall. I have the match sheet 
Because you remember at the Irish Masters, they used to come round at the end of every frame, Shay Keenan, who was the press officer, and they'd hand out a sheet that detailed every shot that had been played in the frame. I mean, the detail of that is incredible. Anyway, I got the match sheet and got it signed by John, and I still have it up on the wall here. So amazing you should mention it just as I look at that. Yeah, the, I, I think, I, I, I mean, I just, my memory is not as good as yours. I, I think I was there for that. I was well, certainly there for it. I think I was. You were, yeah, you were at the tournament. Yeah. I think I saw it, yeah. Um, but I can't be sure. And I, I, like I say, I can't absolutely remember the first one I commentated on. I'm not being blasé. I just can't remember. <laughs> the, the, I remember the, um, the, the, the Crucible in 2008. Uh, I'm fairly sure I hadn't witnessed one by then. I certainly hadn't witnessed one at the Crucible. But I went in and sat in the press seats for the final session of O'Sullivan against Williams in the second round. I watched the first three frames. And then I thought, yeah, I better go back to the press room now. I don't know. I think I had some work to do or whatever. Because we do do some work in the Crucible press room <laughs> occasionally. Uh-huh. Uh, and, of course, inevitably, I leave the arena. I go back to the press room. Next thing I know, 56, 64, 72. And I'm thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. I had the best seat in the house to see Ronnie O'Sullivan make a maximum at the Crucible. So I actually went back in and kind of stuck my head, you know, through the curtain to see him put the last few colours. But it wasn't the same as actually being in the arena for it. The only one I can definitely remember being in the arena for was the one that Higgins made um, in the Northern Ireland Open 2016. I think it was against Sam Craigie. And again, I mean, as you say, I mean, it is still special to be there for it and just that kind of sense of expectation because for most people who are in the audience for that, it's going to be the first one that they've ever witnessed. No, that's right. And I think, you know, obviously when we get back to, when we get back to hopes, hopefully some normality, the audience are very much part of it. I always like to see someone make one who hasn't made one before. I, I, Nop and Sandy yeah. at, at the Welsh Open, you know, it clearly meant a lot to him. Fergal, of course, at the Championship League. Uh, Phil, yeah. Phil's spoken about that before. And there's all sorts of names on the list. Sort of, They're almost kind of remembered now, uh, in a way, because they made maximums. I mean, there was a couple back in 98, Adrian Gunnell and Mehmet Husni within three or four mm. days of each other in, in, in qualifiers. They're on the list. People like Jason Prince, Nick Dyson, Carl Burrows, David McClellan, all these sort of people. And, of course, also the players who've had maximums made against them. Most famous of all, Mick Price. Yeah. Um, Mick Price sort of lives on as a trivial pursuit question, doesn't he? Um, well, he loves it. Because he, yeah. he worked in the press room for a while, didn't he? You know, towards the end of his playing career, or maybe after his career had finished, he was working for some website or whatever, when websites were very much a, a new thing. And it kept coming up. And he absolutely loves the fact that he's re- remembered. And he keeps appearing on television because you never have to go very long without seeing that being shown somewhere. So, you know, he, he had a reasonably good playing career, but he's not really remembered for anything that he did in his playing career. He never won anything. He never really got to the final of anything. In fact, the only things he's remembered for are the fact that he was playing against Ronnie in that and that he was playing against Dennis at the Crucible in 92 when Dennis had the round yeah. with Lane Ganley over, over the miss being called. But uh, I, was there. I, was in, for something. I, was, I was in the audience for that. All right. I was in the audience for that. Yeah, it was uh, the best thing about that because when you're in the audience, um, you, you obviously you're, you can hear what other people are saying. Yeah. Don't don't hear on TV. And and there were these two old ladies who were clearly big Dennis Taylor fans and were very much affronted by the fact that the referee was applying the rules, which is all Len Ganley was actually doing. Yeah. Um, and you know they were they were. I mean, I, I thought there might be trouble. I thought there might be a pitch invasion. Anyway, we're not here to talk about. Uh, we're not here to talk about that. Yeah, Mick Price. I, uh, the, you're right. He did work in the press room. There was one, and, and there was one time he went. Oh, he, yeah. came, he came up to stage door to sort of come in for the morning, and some bloke wandered up to him. And he said, "Excuse me." Yeah, yeah. He said, "Didn't you used to be Mick Price?" Well, <laughs> I think you'll find he. St- I think you'll find he still is. He went on to become a teacher, um, and actually, the champion of champions a couple of years ago. 
he actually came along and they got a picture with him and Ronnie. It was fantastic, you know. That, well, he's from uh, United. He's from the area, isn't he? Nuneaton. Nuneaton, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fergal's one, by the way. I, I can't let this go unmentioned. I mean, that was all down to me, you know, that Fergal made that one for seven. Okay. Because he wasn't due to be in the Championship League. And the day before, someone had pulled out and they were basically, sorry, Fergal, desperate for someone to come in. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, they didn't just ring anyone. I mean, if no. they'd done that, I would have got volunteered and got my queue out myself and maybe, you know, jammed £100 somewhere along the way. But I just said, well... Um, they were basically ringing people whose numbers they had to hand who were close enough in the rankings that they might have been next in line. And they didn't have Fergal's number, but I suggested more about Fergal. So, of course, him being who he was, uh, he was like, absolutely, I'll be there. Jumped on a plane the next morning, arrived at Crondon Park and made the only maximum of his career. So I have told him since I want a cut of the £500, but I've not <laughs> seen it yet. Oh, good, good luck with that. Yeah. Um but it's, we were talking about commentators, and of course, the, the fact is, you, you know, you're lucky to do a maximum, but it's got you don't have any bearing on it at all. You're just lucky to be there. The same is true of referees. Now, the refs, it seems to me, they have a sort of competition yeah. to see who've done, who've done the most, but actually, it's just complete chance. Brendan Moore, for, uh, for the record, I believe he's leading that list with nine. So, Brendan's done nine. He did the most recent. Gary Wilson's at the... Uh, Pro Series in in January, um, but I was talking to Rob Spencer actually at the Championship League, and he was saying actually it's the easiest frame you can do because yeah, yeah. all you're doing basically is just picking the black out and putting it on its spot. But we should say I think we should we mentioned Ronnie's uh, uh, record break in '97. We should commend Len Gamley, the referee there because he had to be one of the reasons the break is so quick. And we had we had an email about this about a year ago actually. Someone had noticed the way he was sort of positioning. He had to obviously you know do his job. Um, and clearly he did. Um, and I guess all you can ask for in, from a referee is they keep out of the way. John Street famously told someone to shut up during Jimmy's at the That's Crucible. right. That's right. I think, yeah, I think yeah. it was on the green. Someone got overexcited, shouted out. He just shouted, shut up. You could do that in those days. You could just tell people to shut up, and you know, there was no comeback. <laughs> of course, you, you mentioned there people commentating the 147s. There have been some memorable lines. Oh. Um, now, the, the, the Cliff Thorburn one, um, I think it's good luck, mate, that Jack Carnham yeah. said. Now, when Jack died about 20 years ago, there was a page about Monsifax and they misquoted him. I think <laughs> they said that he famously said all the best, mate, or something like that, which he never said. What, one moment I loved, and I don't know if anyone else even remembers this, was the Hendry one at the Crucible in 95, which I think is still the only one that's been made in the one table setup at the Crucible. And it was Clive and John Spencer, who I actually always thought were a really good team, worked very yeah. well together. Yeah. Clive's commentary was every bit as good as you would expect it to be. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he have to come in and out of bulk? In potting the pink, so then get on the, the pink, last flag. Yeah, when he potted the pink to the to the left middle. Yeah, yeah. and then anyway, then it's yeah. touch and go whether he's going to finish on the black. Yeah. And I just remember John Spencer going slow down. Yeah, and he was you know he was just expressing what we were all thinking because yeah. we all wanted to see it see it happen. So that was one that uh, that I always certainly remember as well. Well, well of course Pullman uh, famously said he can see the pockets closing up and closing up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he's got... This is really the day for dreadful impressions, isn't it? Well, yeah, well, yeah but well, I, people don't know what you're saying because I did a couple before we started. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's so, right, yeah. actually, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> about about recent... that's, a, that's available on the Red Bull. Yeah. About yeah. recent news events. Anyway, we'll gloss over that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's the thing. And for those guys, I mean, Carnham, like you say, when he died, that was kind of the thing people remembered, the fact he did that. That's a way of them kind of living on. I'm not sure Ted ever did any, actually, Ted Lowe. I don't know. He must, he must have done one eventually. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, because you see, his, he stopped commentating in 96. 
And there hadn't been that many. So, as we say, he didn't do the Hendry one in 95, unless he maybe did the Hendry one at the UK later in the year. So, yeah, that would be uh, the only one he could even conceivably have done. You'd, you'd, like, to hope he had, you'd like to hope he had done. But let's, but let's talk about this list, okay? So there's 166 maximums. I'm not a revisionist by any means, but I, I'm, I would question, okay, the, to get on the list, you have to, pl- to make a maximum on a templated table. There's some tournaments here. The Benson Edges Championship springs to mind. I mean, they were playing yeah. the snook- that was played in the snooker club in various parts of, of Britain. Uh, the old matchroom league, stroke Premier League, they actually didn't have to conform to the WPBSA templates at the time. So there may be a couple on here that are possibly questionable, but you know they're still maximums, aren't they? You know, I'm not going to try to take them off the players. Um, they're on the list. John Higgins, by the way. He never made a maximum, even in practice, until after he won his first world title in 1998. Well, now, we, we say this, and then it was said that the one he made in 99 was actually the first maximum he'd ever made in either a match or practice. Now, that's always said, and you're quoting him correctly there, but I've actually heard him backtrack a little on that since then. That's not true. I... Yeah, no, he'd made one. He, he made, I, know, I remember when he made one. He made one in between winning the world and the UK Championship. Right, well, there you go then. So, yeah. so when it was said when he made the one in 99... Or so, 2000, wasn't it, when he made the 2000, one? 2000, yeah. Against yeah. Dennis, wasn't it? Yeah, in the yeah. Nations Cup. And it was said, oh, it's the first time he's made one either in practice or a match. But, uh, well, we now know that, you know, that th- th- that wasn't quite the case. We have to mention Diana Schuler. Of course we do. Yeah, because <laughs> she uh, the only she's the only woman to feature on that list because Mark Williams made his one against her in one of the old European Tour or PTC events in Germany. I'll tell you this, and I'm not just bringing this up to wind you up because sometimes I do mention things for other reasons. Something I could see becoming a thing because I'm fairly sure no one's ever done it is the triple crown of 147s. <laughs> I mean, you, you can guarantee that whenever somebody gets to the point where they become the first to have made one in the world, the UK and the Masters, that will be a thing that people will talk about. Well, of course, but that's the thing. I mean, you, you've sort of... You have done it to wind me up, but you, but you brought up an interesting thing. So only have been three in the Masters. So that's the tournament where we haven't had it. And they're all non-British players, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Kirk, Kirk Stevens, uh, Ding Junhui and Marco Fu. You'd think the quality of the field there, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of near misses. But to only have three in, what, 40, well, nearly 50 years, basically, of, of the Masters. Um, that's the one. I mean, Ronnie obviously has had World and UK, hasn't he? Um, Henry. Henry Ding has had UK and Masters, yeah. Um, so yeah. But anyway, that no, you're right. That will definitely be a thing if, if it happens. I mean, just the the other big thing, of course, that you know, and I think this would be actually be much bigger would be when someone makes one in the World Championship final, because yeah. you know we've not well, seen that yet. That that that'll be a massive. Well, thing both that happens. Both Trump and Higgins did their best in there a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's right. Actually, the wasn't one of those in the first frame of the day. Possibly. Yeah, I think it was. And Hugh Edwards, of course, the uh, legendary BBC newsreader, was there. Now, it wasn't the first time he'd been there, but he was there with his son. And as often happens when people like that come along, they were sitting on the press seats. Well, like Westlife that time. Well, he is a, thrown out. Hugh Edwards is a journalist, though, in fairness. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to stop him sitting there. Yeah, no, uh, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the point is that um, so I was sitting with Hugh Edwards and his son. And I've, it was certainly the first time his son had been to the Crucible. I think it was the first time he'd ever been to a live snooker match. And he was a snooker enthusiast. What an incredible thing that would have been. The first frame of live snooker you ever see is the first ever one for well, well, he could final. Have, he could have been the Welsh Donald Sutherland, because of course that yeah, happened well, to him. The I knew actor, this was coming up. You tell actor, that story, yeah. The actor Donald Sutherland, who, who yeah. will also be in our We Didn't Start the Fire special, <laughs> um, he, uh, 
a Canadian, of course, um, went along to the Masters to watch Jimmy White, Kirk Stevens, that semi-final. Turned up late, as actors are wont to do. Uh, and so the first frame he was allowed in to see was the one where Kirk made the match because everyone's going absolutely mad and he's thinking, wow, you know, these these Brits sure like their snooker sort of thing. Um, I thought yeah. you were going to lapse into another bad impression no. there. No, no, I think we I've learned my lesson on that. But yeah, so, um, yeah, but just great memories. And I think even now, you know, it, okay, it's become less of a novelty, but you love to see a maximum. It, it enlivens a tournament, enlivens that session, and it can make a big difference, money or not, to players. You see people like Stuart Bingham, you know, I mean, he's made eight now, Stuart, um, just trying to make them all the time. There's certain players, I mean, it actually, it almost cost him a frame at the Masters. In fact, he might have cost him a frame. He, he went for one. He went for a sort of dodgy plant, which kind of didn't go. But it just shows you, you know, it's still to a snooker player because they know better than anyone now how hard the game is. To a snooker player, it is still a holy grail. I suppose the next thing though is we have to mention Jamie Burnett. Maybe next week we'll do a whole episode on him. One four eight. He made a one four eight in the U, in the UK Championship qualifiers. That's the next thing we're, we're looking for. There's been sixteen red breaks, obviously with the free ball at the start. Before, are we going to see? break on television over 147. What I'd like to see, actually, just because I'm that sort of person, is a 147 that's a 16 red break, so not a maximum. Mm. Try, try and explain that to people. It'll probably happen at some point. One thing I don't think we'll ever see is a 155. Mm. Because when you think about it, 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 you'd have to start, obviously, with a free ball. So you'd have to be snookered on all the reds. Now, that is rare enough anyway, that you'd be snookered on all the reds, but would still have a pot on. That could happen. But then you'd have to get to the black and then make a 147. So it, it seems such an unlikely combination of circumstances. You know someone's going to do it in the Pro Series now this afternoon, <laughs> uh, yeah. now, now, now that I've said that. But what about the other players? I mean, you know, you talk about Ken coming close in the Masters in 2000. I mean, I'm trying to think of other players who've, who've well, come very close to it. Stuart, Stuart Bingham missed yeah. the, the World Championship when, when that would have been a lot of money to him. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but like that, at that stage of his career, that would have been the fortune. Well, I love the Joe Johnson one as well. I think we mentioned this before. Yes. <laughs> I think there were £50,000 on offer. And he really should have made it. And this was in the uh, UK Championship of 1987. Willie Thorne had actually made a 147 in the pre-televised rounds, mm. which was the first time that there had been an official 147 that wasn't on TV. But Joe's got a great chance in the semi-final. And uh, he, he gets to the pink, left himself a slightly more difficult pink. Then he should have done it and ended up missing it. And I remember him saying afterwards, when I potted the green, I was in the Bahamas. When I potted the blue, all I could see was green pound notes. But um, I think someone commented afterwards, we won't ask him what he thought when he missed the pink. So, yeah. But I mean, nowadays, you probably get more attention for not making the 147 when you've had the chance than if you actually do one. And that, of course, brings us on to the various antics of Ronnie O'Sullivan in recent years. Well, yeah, I mean, there was the the time, it was at the World Open, I think, in Scotland, wasn't it, where he at first just didn't want to pot the last black, um, and the referee, Amber Haas, sort of just basically told him to, <laughs> which was a bit, bit odd. And then the Welsh Open, was it, where he, he played for a ping instead of a black? And the thing about that was he came in after, he, wasn't, he actually said, oh, I didn't think there was enough money. So he was very honest about it. Um, a lot of players have sort of defended him, saying, well, you can't tell a player which shot to play, which is true. But go back to what I said at the start, to an audience who've come mm. along, paid their money, you know, they, 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 I'm sure they would have loved to have seen it. That's the thing. You've got to, I mean, look, I don't know what he thinks about it now, Ronnie, but it, it just seemed, as, as protests go, I'm not sure what sympathy he was expecting from anybody, really. No, exactly. Yeah, it's, I, thought, I thought it was a bit out of order, to be honest. And as you say, I mean, it would have been great for people to come away having seen a 147, but equally so they can say, 
oh, well, I was there the day that Ronnie refused to make the 147. So I suppose there's something in that. As for whether or not there should be a special prize for a 147, I don't really see the argument for it anymore because it was such a big deal back in the day. If a sponsor or a promoter wants to put one up, that's great. But I don't really think they should be criticised for uh, for not having one. We don't need to go through the story again because we've told it so many times in so many different contexts, of course, about <laughs> Ronnie making the one in Ireland where they'd said there was a car on offer. Then they withdrew the car. Then they had the car at the front of the building. So Ronnie thought he'd won it. And of course, it was left to me to break the news that he hadn't. But anyway, we've told that story so many times, but we couldn't do an episode of Maximums without mentioning it once more. Well, I, I like to see a Maxima. I enjoyed John Higgins' at the Crucible last year. That was a good moment. It's one of the few things John had never done. Mm. Um, and of course, we hadn't had one there for eight years. Hendry's in 2012 was the last. It's still very difficult to make a Maximum. I mean, they were sort of, you know, you get this discussion periodically what's harder a maximum or a nine data you know the maximum is harder it's the hardest by a mile the hardest thing hardest thing to do in snooker there's so many great players who've never done it in a tournament and um you know we we hope to see more we've had an email actually from david burney despite you making a joke Mm. about his name last time i thought it was a really good one actually yeah go on he's in canada he said uh obviously you have to bring up cliff's maximum at the crucible not sure how many listeners knew knew that he had a dream about it the week before he, he dreamt that the cue ball went up in the air and split the reds beautifully, and then he made the maximum. Uh, you, you know, he says, yeah, going a full circle, as you did discuss dreams in past podcasts. I had a dream last night. My arm was bleeding, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> he said, what about having a big money prize for a maximum at the shootout? It might bring in more of the high-caliber players, and seeing a 147 in the 10 minutes would be quite a feat. Yeah, well, you can have a prize by all means. I mean, if, if anyone made one in that, then that is something because obviously the time constraints. Um, Chira knew made a made a one three nine. I think Mark Allen had a one four two didn't he this year, which was a a, a great break. But um, you know, that's again someone's got to find the cash. That's the thing with these prizes. Um, yeah, but that would be something for sure if, if there was everyone in that in, in that. Well, tournament. well, it would. But I mean, there have been quite a few maximums made in under ten minutes. You know, under normal. Oh, yeah. Snooker yeah. rules. So, I mean, it's definitely possible. There's probably only, I don't know, maybe half a dozen players, maybe 10 at the most, we'll say, on the circuit who would be capable of playing quickly enough to do it. That would be a big story, to be fair, if someone managed to do that. Because, you know, nearly every time there's a 147, there tends to be one sort of key moment where, you know, which always ratchets up the tension where someone has to study the shot a little bit longer because there's one, you know, uh, difficult hurdle to be cleared along the way. And to clear that, in 10 seconds, which is what it might have to be if it was late on in the break. You know, that, that would be quite something. So, yeah, I guess that would be a story as well. Just to conclude this discussion on maximums, and it goes full circle to where we started talking about Billy Joel. Um, Alex, Alex Higgins made a record called, called 147, That's My Idea of Heaven. That was, that was the name of the song. Um, nice. didn't, didn't trouble the charts too much. There's footage. I think you sent it to me, actually. Oh, that's um, right, actually. Yeah, yeah, uh, Frank, Frank, yeah. Boff, Frank Boff, the late Frank Boff, great Frank yeah. Boff, who died recently. Um, and there was, by the way, just to be topical again, Frank Boff, there was someone who wouldn't walk off a breakfast show because someone said something he didn't like about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you anyway, almost think that was all staged, but anyway. Well, well, well I don't know. I, I, anyway, I'm, I'm not going to give him any more publicity yeah. than, he, than he deserves. But um, Frank Boff, oh yeah, he, uh, he was interviewing Alex about this record and was very kind of condescending, it's got to be said, towards him. And Alex, who, you know, was <laughs> was not known for his even temper, I thought took it all in good heart. Um, it was a terrible record, don't get me wrong. But uh, but the B-side of uh, of that record, I think it's called Life in the Pocket. 
which was much more kind of uh, contemplative, cont cont yeah, contemplative. That's it, yeah, reflective, yeah. whatever. Um, it's all there on YouTube. Um, but yeah, so but again, that's you know that shows you in, in that era what a big deal a maximum was that someone would actually write a song about it. Well, that was just after he had uh, he had won the world championship that he brought out that record. There were a lot of them. Go he was on another one, wasn't he, called The Wanderer with a few yes. of the other players. I think he was on that. And then, of course, we always talk about Snooker Loopy, which people slag off. But let's be honest, we all remember it very, very fondly. I bought it. I bought it. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. hey. Yeah. Apparently, that made the difference between it being number six and number seven that week was you buying <laughs> it. You nudged it up a place in the charts, probably, I don't know, overtaking level 42 or something like that. Not king. Yeah. yeah. But... Oh, yeah. Uh, Okay, well, well, we'll draw a line under that. But if you've got any memories, if you've ever been to see a Maximum, uh, let us know uh, what, what, that, what that was or well, near misses or anything. Go on. Someone else we have to mention, because I'm fairly sure nobody else has ever done this in the history of the game. I'll, I'll throw the name at you. You probably know this. What, what unique place in snooker history? And we'll say it's unique because it almost certainly is. Does Bob Chandler have? <laughs> well, Bob Chandler, yeah, he was a referee who refereed a one full seven, but also himself made one. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> you know, what a thing. I haven't heard anything about him for a long time. He'd be some age now, but uh, yeah, what a feat. Lovely guy as well, Bob. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we've got, a, before we, we end this week, we've got a few emails, which I'll try and get through as quickly as possible. Um, this is a subject that keeps coming up, commentary. Um, Joe Richards writes, I was just watching the Players' Championship and, and thinking how insightful and interesting Neil Folds is. Oh, yeah. I've heard a few people compliment how he's arguably the best commentator. I think because he's not on the BBC, his talent probably goes under the radar with the non-hardcore fans. I think snooker and cricket commentators are so important to the joint at the game because of the slow pace of play. I wonder who you think are the best commentators. And then he goes on to list his, his own. Well, clearly, I, I mean, I'm personally not going to start naming my, my favourite commentators because I do the job myself. And, uh, you know, I work with a lot of these people. I have to say, all the people I work with, I think, are really good in different ways. I think different people bring, you know, different sort of aspects of themselves and their experience uh, to the job. But I'll say two things quickly. The first is, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating. When you compare commentators, it's important to remember that there are two distinct roles. There's a league commentator and there's a, the player stroke analyst. So obviously the player is there essentially to do the sort of technical uh, shot uh, analysis. And the league commentator is there to add context, add information. It's quite a, it's, it, it, you look at football, okay, Martin Tyler, Gary Neville, you don't compare them as commentators, they're doing different things. Mm. Now, in snooker, it's true the lines have been blurred, particularly on the BBC where it tends to be mainly players. But even there, you tend to find John Virgo and Dennis Taylor, they will be the lead commentators when they're working. They'll take over that role. Um, and it's not always straightforward. I, one one week I will, a if, a, if I get permission, and B, if I can work out how to, how to actually do it, I'll try and record what we hear down at Eurosport when we're sort of on air, when we're coming on air, mm. we get, um, obviously, uh, the Eurosport operation is, is based in Paris. We're, we're in London, but we get, uh, for a lot of the tournaments, produced by people in, in France who give us instructions. But sometimes, you know, things go wrong. The thing they're going to put on screen doesn't happen or you have to fill in for a while. And this is where I think snooker players might struggle, actually, a little bit because you're not describing shots you're doing a broadcast job. Um, I mean, this is true. I don't, I don't think there's any harm in saying this. The final military, because he was he was involved in this last week, the Gibraltar Open. At the end, when the last ball went down, there was sort of about 20 seconds to cover while they got the interview set up. Um, but Eurosport, the way they work is 
they because they want to show that final again at some point. And it's commentated in so many languages that they need all the commentators to stop talking for about 10 seconds. So they know they've got a clean out where they can stop. You know, that's what we show in the highlights. There's no one talking mid-sentence. So the, the Eurosport producer told me to stop talking. But the on-site producer to cover the, that 20 seconds told me to carry on talking. So I was literally <laughs> talking about Catch-22. One, I'm hearing two people. I'm hearing the Paris uh, producer and the director on-site one is telling me to stop talking and one is telling me to carry on talking. In the end, I decided to stop talking because I just thought that was the easiest thing. So these are things you've got to wrangle with. And you also hopefully at the time got to try and make sense. And they are more um, sort of journalistic roles. But here's to go back to what Joe was saying. This is, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right about Neil, but this is the thing with Neil. Neil is just a really good broadcaster. Mm. Forget, forget, I mean, he's a top snooker player and he's a great commentator, but he's a really good broadcaster. He understands broadcasting. Um, a lot of people probably don't know that when he stopped playing, you know, he actually did some work for Ladbrokes, their TV operation. He's worked for a company called Turf TV, doing sort of racing, greyhound racing, these sports that he loves. I've no doubt at all he could be a, a cricket broadcaster if, you know, if sort of non-cricketers had more of a role to play in that. He understands broadcasting. When you come to, when a programme starts and they're in the studio, Neil will be sort of, smiling and looking like he wants to be there, be looking at the camera. He won't be sort of staring off into the distance somewhere. He understands how broadcasting works. And so that's half the battle. Um, well, I, th- not- I think I think he perhaps, you know, had an eye on it a long time back because I remember when he was still a very good player in being on Sky as a studio analyst. It may have been something like, say, the Scottish Masters, where he wasn't quite ranked high enough to be in it, but they had him as the studio analyst for the week. And he was brilliant at it even then. And I mean, he's just got every asset that you need. He knows the game technically inside out. He follows the circuit so clearly. He knows most of the players personally. Really good sense of humour as well. And a unique sense of humour, actually. I think anyone who knows him would say that. And I think most of all, and there are not enough people in broadcasting who have this attribute, but I think it's essential. He doesn't take himself too seriously. In fact, he doesn't take himself seriously at all. And I think that really comes across. And uh, that's why it adds up to, uh, to a wonderful package with Neil. And, you know, that's why we, we hear so much of him now. Yeah, and also he will go into a match thinking about what that match is about. You yeah. know, and it's all the, all these subplots that we talked about earlier with these tournaments. He'll be aware of all of that. It's not just another match to him. Um, we you talked about the the Hendry Maximum, um, uh, the Crucible on the one table, Clive and John Spencer. If you want to understand the the commentary roles, just watch that. Yes. Frame. Yeah, yeah. Clive yeah. Clive gives essentially information and context and builds the drama and Spencer, John Spencer does all the shot analysis and they do it really well. They don't tread on each other's toes and they don't over talk either. Um, here's the, the final thing I think to say about commentary though, is obviously everyone has their preference on what they want to hear. Some people particularly who play want to hear a lot of technical description. Some people don't like that at all. They'd rather hear about kind of the players and the personalities. Some people don't want much talking at all. You know, everyone wants to be different. And of course, most people think that what they want is what they should get. So you're never going to please everybody. But, you know, I mean, all the people that all the players that I work with, I mean, they're all passionate, um, you know, snooker people. Someone like Dominic Dale is a good example. He had, Dominic has perfect timing um, when he comes in to speak. He, he understands that you don't talk over shots. He's got the, the sort of vocabulary to judge his comments to the sort of time, you know, that he has to say them. Um, and does it in a kind of different way to some of the others. You've got Alan, obviously, who's just superb as an analyst, Alan mm. McManus, and so on and so on. Like I say, I think they're all they're all good in different ways. But I agree with what 
the email that was saying, Joe, there, Neil's a great commentator, but first and foremost, he's a great broadcaster. He actually understands broadcasting. And I guess the problem in a lot of sports, widening it out from snooker, is a lot of people now, when they start in broadcasting, they're just given a microphone and get on with it. And they're not really given any grounding. Um, and you, they have to learn as they go along. And it's, you know, it's not easy. People, a lot of people think it is. It's not easy. You're live on TV. You know, there's pressure on you to, uh, to sort of deliver the goods. Yeah, no, I'd agree with all of that. And just even taking the example of the, you know, the, the three established guys in the ITV team, Neil, who we've talked about, Alan and Stephen, I, I'd say they're all pretty much equally good, but all in quite different ways. You know, I think Stephen would be quite different to the other two, uh, just in his style of doing it. And I mean, Alan's just kind of in a whole other world. It's almost like any time he opens his mouth, you learn something. And, yeah. you know, he's just got these observations that you would never have spotted yourself, that only really a player like him could spot. But then when you see them, you think, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So, it, again, that just underlines that there's no right or wrong way to do commentary. People can be very good at it in very, very different ways. And I think those three actually in particular, uh, you know, highlight that. Absolutely. Well, we're still on the subject of TV. Matt Tarrant has written in about an email a few weeks ago. He said, while answering Tom Milliard's question on players' non-prize money income last week, you said... That's another discussion for another time about how TV matches are apportioned, which got me thinking on an interesting question. How are TV matches apportioned? <laughs> Especially when you consider the impact this can have on a player's profile stroke earnings. Who makes the decision, tournament or TV, and using what criteria? Can you guys always predict it? Is it in any way transparent? Is there any accountability? Well, Matt, it's a good question. I think a lot of people wonder this. I wouldn't say it's transparent necessarily. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, no. Essentially, what I would say from the off is, OK, Will Snooker Tour, the governing body, they have a good relationship with all the broadcasters. The main ones in the UK, obviously, are the BBC, Eurosport and ITV. Uh, in normal times, there's China, there's uh, Chinese companies, CCTV and a few others as well. But essentially, they're the they're the main sort of selection of broadcasters. Now, they have a very particularly good relationship, it's got to be said, with the BBC because they've always been broadcasting snooker. You know, they, they go way back. So, for example, the World Championship, I mean, it's all televised there anyway, but in terms of who plays when, what will happen is the draw will be made on, I think it's the Wednesday morning before it starts on the Saturday. That Wednesday afternoon, the BBC producers, it's actually from IMG who produced their coverage, will come in, they'll look at the matches and they will decide who plays when based on who they are. Now, Ronnie O'Sullivan, we know, will play on that Saturday morning and evening because that's just established. The rest of it, it has to fit together so the two halves are symmetrical but essentially they will judge it on okay when when are our main programs it's easier easier actually to look at the example of the masters because because there's two matches a day now it was different this year because they had the schools program in the afternoon but normally their big program is the afternoon so a ronnie o'sullivan or a judd trump you would think they play at night wouldn't you that's what you'd think but actually they almost always play in the afternoon and someone actually worked out we were talking at the championship league not so long ago I think the last time Ronnie won the UK Championship or one of his last wins there, the only time he played at night was the last session of the final. Yeah, they just, yeah. They just wanted his matches on in the afternoon, which is understandable because they're paying a lot of money to, to show the snooker. So essentially, a producer will come in and say, these are the matches you want on. And World Snooker would have to give them a good reason why they couldn't have that. And there really isn't one in a tournament like that. Um, I was once in the room. It's slightly different at the Home Nations because there's obviously more tables and you have complications like two rounds of the same day. What will normally happen at the Home Nations is the first round, so there's 10 matches essentially scheduled for table one, um, and they will 
be essentially the 10 top 10 players in in the world unless you're in a part of the world like Wales for example where they might put a couple more Welsh on but essentially it'll be all the players you expect to be on it gets more complicated as you go through the tournament because you get to that Thursday where there's the two rounds and you can get a situation and people have cr- criticized this where you get Trumbo Sullivan Trumbo Sullivan but they're the top players in the game and of course not everyone watches every day so if you tune in on a, for the first time maybe on the Thursday night because you know Ronnie's playing and you find out he's been put on table two because he's been on too much, you're entitled to, to, to say, well, why is that? I want to watch him. It's not easy. But as I was saying, I was once in the room when the producer, one of our producers was talking to the tournament director at one of these tournaments. And it's a bit of an arm wrestle, actually. Um, the broadcaster has their views. Will Snooker, obviously, are representing the players. They have their views. Ultimately, no one wants to fall out or argue, but sometimes a few compromises have to be made. And it's like, OK, we'll give you that player if you give us this player sort of thing. Mm. Um, I don't believe it should just be done on the rankings. You've got to try and look at attractive matches. Sometimes early on, you get matches you just know are going to be one sided. And you think, is that doing anyone any good putting that on when you've got two low ranked players playing each other? But it looks more interesting. But, you know, you can't always know, can you, how a match is going to turn out. Look at Ronnie against Aaron Hill in the in the European Masters. Yeah. You, you could argue, oh, that'll just be Ronnie, will just run through him. Well, actually, that was one of the one of the great matches of the early part of the season. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the answer. It's essentially the broadcasters have um, a lot of influence and they, they should do because these tournaments exist because of television. That's the only reason any of these tournaments exist because TV wants to show them. Yeah, um, and they want high ratings for them as well. Yeah, I but, mean, well, but well, that's Snooker, the reality. But, I think it's fair to say Will Snooker are generally accommodating. There's always a few issues um, where there's a bit of friction. But basically, you know, it's quite a small sport in that sense. They know they've got to keep the broadcasters happy. And I think by and large, they do. Well, a lot of the things you're saying there remind me of a letter that I got some years ago when I used to present a radio program where we would do a live Premier League match every Saturday afternoon. And Generally, particularly in Ireland, I mean, Manchester United and Liverpool have massive support in comparison to any other club. So if one of them was playing, that was what you picked as your live game. I remember getting this letter from a listener saying, why do you always pick these two? Could it possibly be because these are the most popular teams? And it was like he was on to us. It's like, yes, that's exactly why it is, because that's what people want to listen to. And look, the reality is, I, I think it, you know, it's overstated by people outside the game how much it relies on people like Ronnie O'Sullivan. The game would still be in massively healthy shape if Ronnie wasn't playing. I mean, we saw that when he basically didn't play for a season. But he is the player who most people want to watch, and Judd is in that bracket as well. And you, you mentioned there the BBC with the World Championship. Well, it, it, you know, when they've had tournaments with two tables, it doesn't matter quite so much if you're not showing it live, which one you pick as your main game, because you can always change it before the highlights come on, if it's like the evening session or whatever. It always reminds me of around the time their coverage was starting to change a lot. The Grand Prix in 1996, there was a guy called Nick Pierce, and I think he'd done a bit of acting. I think he'd certainly done a bit of modelling as well, and they were really trying to build up his profile. He'd actually knocked out Ronnie O'Sullivan in the first round of the televised stage, which wasn't as big. It was a big deal, but it wasn't as big a deal then as it would be now. And he was then playing Alain Robidoux in the last 16. The match on the other table was clearly by far the bigger match. But David Vine, I think he'd been forced into it, had to say in the afternoon, well, no doubt what the big match tonight is. It's Alain Robidoux against Nick Pierce. And you're thinking, no, it's not. It's Stephen Hendry against Steve Davis on the other table or whatever it was. And then inevitably, the match was a complete washout. It was, I think, one big break in the first frame. Then it went really scrappy. Robidoux won 5-0. And mysteriously, by the time the highlights program came on, they decided that, yeah, actually, the other match was the bigger one. 
So there'd be a certain amount of flexibility on it there. But with a live match, of course, you're sort of stuck with what you choose. I think most of the time, it's pretty obvious looking at it, which is the match to put on TV. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I appreciate like hardcore fans who watch everything at times say, oh, we want to watch something different. But that's because you watch everything. Most mm. people most people are not going to, are they? They're going to dip in and out. And it's like Wimbledon. You know you know who's going to be on centre court at Wimbledon. It, it, it kind of speaks for itself in a way. Um, I, I get the feeling there's always challenges in, in doing this, but there's very few real clashes. I think, like I say, there's a few compromises to be met, but it's basically a very friendly way of doing it. And, and I think a lot of it would just, a lot of these matches would sort of pick themselves. Um, let's move on to Leon, Leon Tricker. Um, he's writing about the dress code, but not for the players. He says, I grew up watching snooker through the 80s and early 90s and yearn for the days when audiences dressed in a manner more becoming <laughs> of an event like, as Dave would no doubt say, a triple crown tournament. I appreciate the slide towards casual wear is reflective of standards of dress slipping in society more. This is like a letter to the Telegraph. Uh, <laughs> standards of dress slipping in society more generally. And taking my tongue out of my cheek for a moment, I realise that no one wants to limit the accessibility or appeal of the game. But am I alone in my desire for an audience dress code to be encouraged? Not enforced, encouraged. For the finals of tournaments. I'd be up for tuxedos and dicky bows, but maybe just a shirt and jacket would be a starting point. Your thoughts would be most welcome. Well, Leon, it's certainly true. If you look at sort of footage of old finals, there's a lot of people in suits, actually. Um, you see that. A lot, a lot of men sort of in suits. Maybe they dress more smartly. Personally, I'm against any dress code for the audience. I, I, for a start, I don't think, you know, I don't think sort of you should force anyone to to sort of, you know, go out and spend money on a, on a smart outfit just to go to the snooker when they've already spent money, you know, going to the snooker. Um, how much time do we really spend looking at the audience? I don't know. They did ban football shirts, of course, at the Crucible, which caused a bit of a stink, but that was to stop people turning up with rival sponsors on yeah. the shirt. That's all that was about. Um, you know, as long as people are kind of, you know, <laughs> a, a sort of, you know, not, not sort of um, putting the players off, I suppose, with what they're wearing. I don't see, I don't really see the problem in what people wear. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't really impose it anyway. I mean, who's going to police it for one thing? Mm. And, you know, there'd be all kinds of blurred lines. No, I, I don't think there's any place for that. But it's not its not to do with standards slipping at snooker. It's not even really standards at all. I mean, if you think, you know, when we were growing up, men of our age wore shirts and ties mm. every day, even yeah. if they weren't going to work. You know, I mean, that was the, the kind of the culture back then. I mean, you wouldn't dream of doing it now. If this had been 40 years ago, if there'd been an Internet, if there'd been podcasts, you know, we'd probably be sitting here now wearing suits, even though we're just sitting at well, home doing it. So how do you know I'm not? Well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Barry Hemmett, we all talk about the importance of centuries with, with Ronnie's amazing 1,000. But are there any players who would be deemed an excellent player, but never a pr prolific century maker? I know Mark Williams used to switch off to move onto the next round earlier in his career but still has made plenty of centuries. I would imagine rookie players in their first season may go a season without a century. But is there a recognised player, possibly back in the 90s or 80s, that may have gone a long time without one? I suppose a bit like a cricketer constantly breaking down in the 90s when they were less pr prolific. Well, the truth is, uh, Barry, and I know it was a different game then and all the rest of it, but a lot of the big names of the early 80s didn't make many centuries, did they? I mean, Alex Higgins, I don't think, made 50 in his career. Um, it was just a different time. The conditions were certainly different. The balls were heavier, cloth thicker, all, all of that. You had a lot of safety, which I suppose meant the table went awkward. But the, the game was just played differently. It wasn't played in, in always in the same attacking way. So, you know, it was 1988 when we first had a player, Steve Davis, made three centuries in a row. Now, these days, 
that almost goes unremarked upon because we're just used to that sort of scoring. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can't really add anything to what you're saying there. I know Cliff Wilson, um, he used to like de- deliberately miss uh, when he was closing in on the century because he just he used to say it used to take too much out of you. And I mean, he was a top 16 player. So, yeah, it's back in those days, centuries weren't such a big thing as they, as, as they are now because they were quite rare and you didn't generally have to make them to win frames. I'm trying to think of anyone in the modern game, but it's hard to think. I mean, you, you probably wouldn't make it to the top nowadays if you weren't a prolific mm. maker of centuries. So, uh, yeah, hard to think of an answer to that one, really. Dave Tyndall, um, I heard in commentary that you said Chris Wakelet and Matt Selt were instead of re-rack despite getting down to pink and black. That's true, Dave. It was in the uh, China Open five years ago. They played again, actually, in the Gibraltar, but there was, there was none of that business. Anyway, he said, so here's a scenario, OK? He said, the high break in a tournament is 1-4-1, and Barry Hearn has offered £1,000 per point for the high break prize. In a strange last-frame decider in the final, a player gives away 141 points in fouls. He then, aided by a free ball, makes a break of 142. However, pink and black are awkward, and with a first prize of £300,000, both players are scared to make a false move and decide on a re-rack. The outcome is finally settled next time, but this final frame has no big break in it. So my question is, is that break of 142 null and void? Surely the player would be aggrieved to be denied a £142,000 payout. I think it's fair to say, Dave, a lot of things have got to happen there to, yeah. uh, to make that. And not least, why would the pink and black be awkward if someone had made a 142? Um, but, um, but yeah, it would be null and void is the, is the simple answer, because none of the points count from a re-rack frame. We had Sean Murphy got a bit shirty, didn't he? I think with one of the referees all, all certainly questioning because he was, I think, 32 in front against Ashley Hugill and there was just a stalemate. And the ref, I think reasonably, Ben Williams it was, said, OK, five shots each. We've got to resolve this. But Sean was saying, well, why have I got... I'm, like, the onus is now me because I'm in front sort of thing. But that's the thing. The points don't carry over. Breaks don't carry over. So in that scenario, he would not get a penny, the player. Yeah, but it's never going to happen, is it? So... <laughs> so uh, uh, I'll tell you something far more interesting. While you were doing that, I looked up Cliff Wilson right. online. Um, what do you think? Now, bear in mind, Cliff Wilson, as I said, he was a top 16 player, albeit only for one season, but still, I mean, that was quite a standard to reach. What do you think was the greatest number of centuries he ever made in a season? Have a guess. Well, I'm guessing it's quite low, so I'll say four. One. <laughs> he never made more than one century in a season, and he only made six in his entire career. And here's an incredible thing. He made a century break in the 84-85 season. He then didn't make another one until the 89-90 season. In the intervening period, he'd been in the top 16 for a while. So, I mean, there you go. That, that just underlines it. I mean, he was a really good player. Yeah, well, well, that, that, uh, well that's the answer then, isn't it, um, to uh, Barry's question. Uh, yeah. Very quickly, we'll just uh, go on to Jamie Norris. So I'm catching up on the last two weeks podcast and an email you read out from Rob, the physics professor, caught my attention. Rob said that snooker balls can't defy the laws of physics, i.e. there are no big bounces when playing plain ball, nor bad runs of the ball when playing badly. While I'm normally a person who respects scientific fact, Rob has overlooked one key factor, the input of the snooker gods. The snooker gods commonly apply divine intervention to matches in which a player has wasted their chance to win or selected a negative shot without deference to scientific fact. If any proof is needed, look no further than the snooker gods responding to your recent slander of the brown ball, by propelling this, you have to, if you don't get that, you have to listen back to uh, previous mm. episodes. Uh, by propelling the 750 to one outsider Jordan Brown to his first ranking title at the Welsh Open, the first winner of a ranking event with a snooker ball surname other than White. 
For what it's worth, I'm colourblind, so I tend to... Well, G- Gerard Green went close. He got to a final. Well, go, going close, yeah. I'm afraid, isn't the same. He no, said, for what, for what it's worth, I'm colourblind, so I tend to agree with your view on the brown. But I think the gods are sending us a message here. In all seriousness, my question is, when was the first reference to the snooker gods? You hear commentators mention them often as, it, as if it's accepted that they exist and always have. Yeah, it, it's an old cliche, isn't it? The snooker gods don't forgive you and all that. The point is, without, and this is not a theological podcast, okay? Um, but, you know, obviously throughout history, people have sort of followed, I mean, we used to worship the sun years ago and then through sort of established history, stroke myth, stroke whatever, people have followed gods in different religions. It's essentially what you believe, isn't it? It's about belief. So if in your mind you think, I missed that red in the last frame, now he's fluked a snooker in this frame and the two are connected, the snooker gods are punishing me because I missed one, then that will affect how you feel in the match. Um, if you're sort of a more rational person who maybe thinks they're not connected, then fine. But the snooker gods, they feel at times like they're real because it's amazing how many times someone makes a mistake and it's almost like then they get punished for a couple of frames for it. But, you know, we, well, put it so we've never seen the snooker gods, have we? We wouldn't, we wouldn't know them if we saw them. Yeah, I, I, I'm just minded to answer just by saying that the, one of the great lines in snooker, actually, it's the second time we've mentioned him today, Kirk Stevens. And he said this. I don't know what the context was, but he said it to Clive many years ago. He said, it's never fate. It's always you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I, I think I'll let that stand as, as my response yeah. to that. I mean, look, maybe players sort of almost subconsciously make things go wrong because they're the ones punishing themselves. Are so frustrated, a bit like Lu Ning earlier. What we were saying, where he had missed all those chances to win the decider against Jack Lazowski in the quarterfinal on Sunday, and then conceded when he actually still had a decent chance to win. So maybe it's a self fulfilling thing. Who knows? Well, there's an old saying, isn't it? There's an old saying: those who the gods admire first, they make mad. Uh, make make of that make of that what you will. Uh, yeah. We better and then end... they start a snooker podcast. Yeah, we better end soon because we've been going, we're going longer than I thought. But we'll, we'll finally, Scott Fife. He said, the recent Welsh Open coverage reminded me that I've always wondered whether a player finger-tapping finger the table prior to playing a shot or after is a nervous tick or a cueing aid. I saw both Mark Williams and Barry Pinches do it in matches at Celtic Manor. I think I was first conscious of it as far back in the 80s when I recall Tony Mio. Oh, he Jimmy, was the king of it, yeah. And Jimmy White were early examples. If anything, I feel like Mio did it on nearly every shot at one point. Any insight from you two would be welcome. I've always understood it as kind of, it's kind of a nervous thing, I think. Um, I wonder if it sort of players think it sort of helps almost with timing as well, um, just getting ready to sort of play the shot. But it seems that what you what you do see though, Tony Mills' example of this, because he did it in matches, you start to see if you go down the snooker club, people would just start doing it because they'd seen it on telly. <laughs> I saw Stephen Henry do it actually last week. Yeah, I mean his comeback match, he was tapping his finger. I don't remember him ever doing that back in the day. Joe, of course, Joe Johnson um, used to do that thing with his eyebrows. Yes. Basically the same thing, but with a different body part. People have all kinds of weird things. I mean, I, I played a few rounds of golf last summer during the brief period when we were allowed to do that uh, with a guy I'd never played with before. And he had this really weird sort of Wizard of Oz type thing going on where he had actually banged his shoes together about three times before hitting the <laughs> tee shot. Now, I, I, I've heard from the guy, the, the other guy we were playing with that day that he's since eradicated that and has improved immeasurably. But it's all these things. Everyone's got little ticks like that in, in, in every game. And if it helps you... Um, then I'm all for it. But personally, I think things like that, probably, they're all psychological. I think they probably do you damage because if, if you do, it's what um, psychotherapists call the safety behavior. So if you're tapping your finger and you play a good shot as a result, that's sending a message to your brain 
that actually you played the good shot, not because you're a good player, but because you were tapping a finger. So I think it's counterproductive in the end. Yeah, well, we're almost sort of back to the snooker gods again, aren't we? But yeah. it's, the mind, well, I think what we've established and what everyone knows already is that the mind in snooker is very, very crucial to your whole sort of how you're going to fare because it's how you control your thoughts. Um, there's a lot of time in snooker to allow thoughts to fester. Obviously, there's a lot of time spent sat in your seat apart from anything else. Um, and then when you're at the table, it's down to you. So uh, anyway, that hopefully that answers that. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't got any more time for... Any more questions? Otherwise, we'll literally run into next week's podcast recording. Mm-hmm. So um, so that's it, I guess. Uh, thank you for listening, if you've made it this far. Um, you can email us, of course, at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Um, I hope you're enjoying the excellent adverts, if there are any. I, I was, I'm not quite sure yet if, they, if they've started, uh, but um, I'm sure if they have, they're brilliant. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're greasing the corporate wheel now. We are well. I hope so. I hope there's enough yeah. wheel to. I hope there's enough wheel to grease. But uh, anyway, uh, but hopefully uh, the podcast is landing in all the in all the usual um, offices, if that's the word. Um, well, it's, a, it's appropriate if we are greasing any sort of wheel because I mean we've been going round and round in circles every week for a few years now. So it's true. Well, of course, in some ways um, we're sort of coming up to the first anniversary of of uh, of this sort of um, this run. Well, I, I remember this iteration of the podcast. I suppose. Well, well. Well, um, who was what's what you call the guy? Uh, Dorsey, is it Jack Dorsey, who started Twitter? Yeah, yeah. I, I noticed he was auctioning off his first ever tweet yesterday mm. for something like two million dollars. I think they got for it in the end. I think we could get quite uh, a bit of money for that text that I sent you, probably pretty much exactly this time last year, saying maybe we should do one or two extra podcasts during lockdown. And here we are now, a year on. How much money do you think we could get for that? <laughs> Probably about a fiver. We wouldn't yeah. spend any corporate wheels with that. No, it's a, that that wheel has been left ungreased. Anyway, on that on that rather unappealing image, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, as we always say at the end of the podcast, goodbye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.